0: Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States, episode 3.38, Quebec. Last time, we spent our time looking at the French victory over Fort Niagara and the French withdrawal from both Fort Carillon and Fort St. Frederick at Crown Point. The French had abandoned these formerly critical holdings and had withdrawn all the way up to the island of Noix. As all of this is happening, there was a third critical front that we put on the sidelines last time. Specifically, James Wolfe and his army in Louisbourg had made their way south, and were now moving on Quebec. We had put this expedition against Quebec to the side last time, not because it was less important, but for the complete opposite reason. This is the mission that we have been building to for the entire run of this series, and it was indeed a defining battle if not THE defining battle of the French and Indian War. I bring this up right now, because I want you to keep this in mind as we talk today. Aspects of what we discussed this week are going to help explain what we discussed in our last episode. I'll do my best to help fill in as we go. Second, there is a mountain of information to cover regarding the Battle of Quebec, so this battle is actually going to be split between two episodes. Otherwise, this episode would become way longer than anybody is going to want to hear me talk for. The year 1759 had not gotten off to a great start for James Wolfe and his plans to attack Quebec. With the ousting of Abercrombie, Wolfe had ascended to the second-highest ranked position in North America, just behind Amherst himself. However, promotion aside, that preparations for the assault on Quebec had gotten off to a rather rocky start. Back in London, the plan for 1759 that William Pitt had in mind was not radically different from the end goals for the 1758 campaign. Amherst would move through the Champlain Valley to the southern St. Lawrence River and approach from the south, with Wolfe leaving from Louisbourg and approaching from the north. Quebec and Montreal were the targets on everybody's mind. The first problem that Wolfe ran into was that bad weather delayed his departure from Louisbourg. The original hope was that Wolfe would leave in early May. However, the weather delayed the mission by over a month. The second problem came with the size of his army. Pitt had envisioned that the army would be some 12,000 strong, which would be a sizable force. However, by this point the war had become a truly global affair and there were only so many men to go around. The British would instead end up with closer to 8,500 men for the campaign. The 8,500 men regulars and provincials alike, were divided into three brigades, under the commands of Brigadier Generals James Murray, Robert Monckton, and George Townsend. There were 1,000 provincial troops that were left behind in Lewisburg, primarily from Massachusetts. Again, here we see that now common British tactic of using provincial troops in order to allow the regular British troops to do the actual fighting. With a smaller-than-planned army leaving a month later than expected, On June 4th, Wolfe and his army set out towards Quebec. The French objectives in 1759 were largely to survive to fight another day. Military losses in 1758 had exposed the French heartland unlike previously in the war. Couple that with a bitterly cold winter in 1758 and a failed harvest, and the French were in a seriously bad way. Luckily, bad weather had also delayed the establishment of the British blockade of the St. Lawrence, meaning that the much-needed relief supplies were able to make it to Quebec. However, even though starvation had been narrowly avoided, things really were not looking great for the French. As they went into 1759, the French had two primary motivations that would help define the year for them. On the one hand, there was a sense of desperation. If Quebec fell, did all of Canada go with it? At the same time, there was the continued infighting regarding the overall war strategy between Montcalm and Vaudreuil. We had discussed previously that these two men really did not agree on the overall direction of the war. Although these differences went back years by this point, the potential for the catastrophic collapse of all of Canada made them that much more poignant. Montcalm was to his very core, the textbook example of a European commander of his age. We discussed back in episode 3.33 how he carefully went through the well-choreographed performance that was expected in Siegecraft. His professionalism, however, did not expire there, but extended to all aspects of how he planned on conducting the war. Montcalm viewed the loss of land as being synonymous with defeat. With Canada now seriously threatened, the goal was going to be consolidating forces in Quebec and Montreal to fight a final stand to save the empire. For Montcalm, the goal was to stave off the inevitable long enough that the St. Lawrence would freeze up, forcing the British to have to withdraw. Then, crossing his fingers and hoping that there would be a peace agreement in 1760, while well, the French still held significant enough portions in Canada. If they were to lose that foothold, the survival of French Canada itself, would be on very shaky ground. Vaudreuil brought a worldview that was far more influenced by his experience in the colonies. Vaudreuil understood the importance of defending the Western forts, those that had been lost the year before in the Ohio country. He understood the need to cultivate and maintain close alliances with Indian tribes and the vital importance of the continued campaigns of harassment along the frontiers. For Vaudreuil, no single location was the critical linchpin of the operation. The thinking being that if the French just kept taking shots at the British, eventually they will wear them down enough to force a peace whereby they would recover any territory that was lost. Consider also that following the massacre at Fort William Henry, Montcalm was very reluctant to ever use Indian tribes again. Although he did acknowledge their importance, he was reluctant to utilize them in the future. He never fully trusted them again after what had happened at Fort William Henry, if he had ever trusted them in the first place. For the French, this problem had become so serious that it was proving to be a significant hindrance to the overall war effort. With the two men bickering and refusing to accept that the other was in charge, Versailles itself found it necessary to intervene. When those French reinforcement ships had managed to get into the St. Lawrence prior to the British blockade being established, they brought with them Montcalm's personal aide, Louis-Antoine de Bougainville. Bougainville brought with him information from Versailles, making it clear to everybody that when it came to military matters, it was going to be Montcalm's call. Montcalm was the guy, and he was the one who was going to be calling the shots. Although both Montcalm and Vaudreuil were present for the defense of Quebec, Montcalm was now clearly in charge. Now, before I move on, I want to talk about Bougainville very briefly, because the guy is actually pretty interesting. Following the war, he would become the first Frenchman to circumnavigate the globe. He would again take up arms for France against the British during the American Revolution. Later, he would end up having to flee Paris during the Reign of Terror, before eventually being named a senator by then First Consul Napoleon. And just a minor spoiler for later on today, he is not even the biggest future explorer that we are going to interact with in this episode. However, more on that later. With the instructions now clearly putting Montcalm in charge, the name of the game became consolidating his forces and preparing for the defense of Quebec and Montreal. Recall last week, when the army stationed in Crown Point suddenly turned and fell back to El Noir. The purpose of falling back is that this proved to be a more defendable position, as it blocked the British advance up the Richelieu River. This would block the British from having access to either Montreal and ultimately Quebec itself. This is also a sign of Montcalm's official takeover of command. For him, blocking the Richelieu River provided far more of a strategic advantage than continuing to hold control over Lake Champlain. This desperation under Montcalm also led to the assembly of a surprisingly large French force in Quebec itself. Montcalm had managed to assemble a force between twelve and 15,000 men for the defense of Quebec. However, despite their apparent numerical advantage, there are a couple of key points to consider. Montcalm was desperate to defend Quebec, and except for the army hanging out down on El Anoua, the entire French force was in Quebec itself. Everybody understood that this was going to be the critical battle of the war. And as such, anybody willing to fight could join. This was not the moment to be picky. As a result, there were maybe four to 5,000 regulars with an equal number of Canadian militia. The rest of the army was comprised of pretty much anybody who was willing to take up the fight. The key takeaways here are that while Montcalm had a slight numerical advantage on paper, it is not like this entire army was made up of the cream of the crop. So do not get too caught up on the fact that the French were working with a larger army. The numbers can be a bit deceptive. Thankfully for Montcalm and the French, Quebec sat in a defendable position. This was critical because the British Navy had, by the time Wolfe left Louisbourg, established their blockade of the St. Lawrence there would be nothing like the French Navy sailing in to save the day and protect the city. For the defenders of Quebec, they were going to be forced to rely upon the natural and man-made defenses that the city provided. So, let's take a moment to get a sense of what the British were walking into. As we have already established, the British were going to be coming up the St. Lawrence and ultimately having to find somewhere for Wolfe to land and unload his 8,500 men. This alone was a significant challenge, and the St. Lawrence isn't exactly an easy approach. Fog often obscured the river, which featured rough and unpredictable currents. As we have discussed, there was also the fact that ice would seriously limit the time to do anything. Wait around too long in Quebec and you would risk getting trapped in by the ice. Plus, it is not like this was a small group of boats sailing up towards Quebec either but instead it was a large British fleet. If the British survived the perilous trip up the river, they would find that Quebec itself sat in a defendable position. First, before you reached Quebec, you had to contend with the island of Île-de-Orion. Not only did the island provide a strong defensive point for the French, but it also significantly narrowed the river, making a potential British landing that much more complicated. Once you finally reached Quebec itself, the town was surrounded by steep cliffs, which would make any potential landing fraught with danger. Unsurprisingly, the French added numerous gun batteries to these locations with the intent that, should the British brave it, they would be cut to pieces. If you are looking at a map of Quebec, which, for the sake of understanding all the places we have been discussing, you really should, you will find that there are two rivers that empty into the St. Lawrence. First, and much closer to the city itself in 1759, was the St. Charles River, which was immediately north of the main town, and the cliffs that would make landing difficult. Approximately six to seven miles further north, you reach the Montmorency River and its famous waterfalls. The area in between these two rivers is Beauport. Looking at the potential landing sites, Montcalm decided that the most likely place that the British would attempt to land was along the shore in Beauport right between the two rivers. Beauport was located to the north of the Plains of Abraham, a large open plateau near Cape Diamant, the portion of Quebec that sticks out into the St. Lawrence. The British had little interest in landing near the Cape, where they would have to deal with those steep cliffs, while all the meantime French troops could easily assemble up on the Plains of Abraham to await their arrival. Beauport was the logical landing point, therefore as it put the British on the ground with fewer challenges than further south. Knowing this, Montcalm quickly got to work digging trenches along Beauport to ensure that the British were not in for an easy landing. Well, Montcalm and, for that sake, Vaudreuil, both recognized that the landing spot was likely to be on the beaches along Beauport, Montcalm decided that it would probably be best to have a contingency plan in place. First, well, Beauport was the logical landing place. Montcalm did not want to leave Quebec totally exposed if, say, Wolfe did not get the memo and tried to land somewhere else. While landing along the cliffs closer to the main town was out, considering that the British were not looking to get decimated while trying to climb those steep cliffs, there was some concern that they could do a speedrun past Quebec and the French batteries and attempt a landing further upriver. Now, although this was still a remote possibility, it was enough to cause Montcalm to put Bougainville in charge of roughly 1000 militia members, tasked with repelling any potential British landing to the south. Montcalm, despite recognizing that pretty much the entire war depended on the defense of Quebec, took measures to ensure that should Quebec fall, the French could live to fight another day. Recall those French ships that had slipped into the St. Lawrence prior to the British getting their blockade in place. Well, Rather than having those ships and their critical supplies remain in Quebec itself, Montcalm had them moved further to the south to Batiscan. Batiscan is located right around 50 miles to the south of Quebec, roughly one third the distance between Montreal and Quebec. Doing this accomplished two goals. First, should the British manage to get a siege established, it meant that the entirety of the French supplies would not fall into the hands of the British. Second, Should things really fall apart for Montcalm, and it become clear that Quebec would fall, it gave the French a fallback point where they could hopefully regroup to fight another day. While the plan risked overextending French supply lines and putting Quebec at some risk of being cut off entirely, it would hopefully help save Canada if Quebec was lost. The British, having left Louisbourg at the beginning of June, had moved south towards Quebec along the St. Lawrence. By all accounts, this portion of the mission went exceptionally well. Advanced British ships had done a good job of securing critical points. They had done so well, in fact, that the British had secured the passage all the way down to Ile d'Orléans without a single British vessel being lost. I want to take just a second to introduce one of these mariners in particular, namely the captain of the Pembroke, James Cook. And yeah, I am bringing attention to Captain James Cook because this is indeed that Captain Cook, the famed explorer who would eventually end up becoming the first European to land in Hawaii. With the river cleared, on June 26, Wolfe made his initial landing on the island of Ile d'Orléans, that island right in the middle of the St. Lawrence River to the north of Quebec itself. The landing went without a hitch, and quickly Wolfe was able to take the island without resistance. The French by this point had consolidated their resources locally in Quebec itself. So, just to make sure we are all caught up, after landing, Wolfe had gotten, with relative ease, control over Ile d'Orléans. Well, the French under Montcalm had placed all of their men in Quebec itself, and reinforced the most logical potential landing sites along the Beaupoint shore. Quickly, the situation became apparent to Wolfe. His reconnaissance showed that the French had done a good job of getting their defenses in place. Where it was not French troops blocking the path, it was difficult terrain that was going to stymie Wolfe and his men. However, not all was lost for the British. While the French had made Quebec itself a rather daunting target, they left the east bank of the St. Lawrence undefended. This would prove to be a poor decision for the French. You see, along the eastern bank of the river, specifically in a region called Pointe Levy, the St. Lawrence was not terribly wide. In fact, it was narrow enough that the British, having secured the position, were within artillery range of Quebec. Beginning on July 12th, Wolfe opened up with artillery fire and began shelling the city. At the same time, Wolfe found that while well, Beauport, where Montcalm was awaiting the British landing, was very well defended. The area on the other side of the Montmorency River was left completely undefended. By landing men there, Wolfe would have positioned himself to potentially make a strike against the left flank of the French defenses in Beauport. If Wolfe could push the French line back, they could open up additional room for more British landings and, hopefully, begin working themselves into a position to accomplish the ultimate end putting Quebec under siege. Landing on July 9th, Wolfe quickly got to work getting as many men on the ground as he could. Joined by Townsend and James Murray, the men spent the next two weeks planning a strike against the French flank. On July 26, Wolfe led two regiments on more of an exploratory expedition than anything else to see how much resistance there would be from a potential river crossing. When Wolfe got his answer, that there would indeed be extraordinarily strong resistance, the British were forced to fall back. Not terribly dissuaded, Wolfe decided a week later that he would strike at a French redoubt near the Montmorency. On the morning of July 31st, British troops under Moncton, back near Point Lévis, prepared for the assault. The plan was that Monckton and his men would make a frontal assault on the redoubt. Townsend and Murray were to be joined by Colonel William Howe in crossing over the Montmorency and leading the attack against the French left flank. Before we move on, we do need to pause for just a moment and confirm that, yes, William Howe is indeed the William Howe who is going to play a significant role in our story next season. We have already met one of his brothers in George Howe, who was killed back at Fort Craylin. However, it will be William Howe who is going to stick around for a while as we are going to see next season. It is going to be William Howe replacing Thomas Gage, whom we have also met earlier this season, as the commanding officer for the British in the American Revolution. Seriously, guys, I mean it when I say that this is really all the same players, just a decade and a half younger. We are going to have plenty of time to discuss William Howe, and I'll give him a proper introduction next season. However, As for today, he is part of the group trying to finally make those critical inroads towards Quebec. The British would begin the assault with an artillery barrage that they hoped would soften up the enemy position. After approximately six hours of doing this, the British made their first move at landing. Unfortunately, as Wolfe quickly learned, the redoubt that he had his eyes set on was not some lone defensive holding for the French. Instead, it quickly became clear that the French had far more defensive structures than a sole redoubt. So, this is where Wolf recognizes that he is messed up and promptly turns around to regroup, right? No. No, it is not. Rather, Wolfe decided that the move was just to pivot. Forget trying to capture and hold the redoubt, because, yeah, that is not going to happen. Instead, just blow right past the redoubt and slam directly into the main French entrenchments. Things actually got off to a pretty decent start, too. The first British troops to land, rather than forming up ranks, ended up just flat-out charging towards the redoubt in question. This mob of soldiers that just came sprinting at them seems to have freaked out the French holding the redoubt, and they quickly abandoned their position. For a brief moment, was going well for the British. They had, somewhat unexpectedly, taken the redoubt after all, and now they had to decide what they were going to do next. The French, however, realizing what had just happened, went ahead and opened fire on the newly captured British position. The French had numerous shallow sloops from which to launch an attack, and it took all the British had not to get annihilated. While our group was trying not to die up near the redoubt, additional landings were occurring in a far more orderly fashion along the river. Meanwhile, Wolfe and his troops were busy crossing the river near the falls, where the water was a bit more shallow. Despite the early victory and the capture of the redoubt and the influx of additional troops, it was soon clear to all involved that this was not going to be the battle that would turn the tide for the British. The French held superior positions, and the British had failed to dislodge the French enough to gain any kind of a meaningful foothold. As British casualties mounted, a massive thunderstorm rolled in, making everything that much more of a disorganized mess. Wolfe, disappointed to be sure, but wanting to live to fight another day, withdrew his men back to their relative safety on the other side of the Mamorici. At the end of the day, the French had suffered approximately 60 casualties, as compared to over 450 British casualties. Critically, this loss, although obviously disappointing, was not like what we had seen back at the Battle of Fort Keralyn. Yes, the British had suffered a setback. But really, this is all that it was. The army was still intact. The retreat was orderly. No general slaughter took place, nor was Quebec suddenly an unattainable target for the British. The fight would continue. In the weeks following the failed landing, Wolfe became increasingly frustrated. Plagued with poor health, an ailment that Wolfe referred to as the gravel, but was probably kidney stones, he spent the next several weeks relentlessly shelling Quebec. Without a foothold in the town itself, all Wolfe could really do is rain general terror on the city in the hopes that Montcalm would eventually throw his hands up and surrender. For those inside Quebec attempting to defend the city, August would prove to be a particularly brutal month. Over a thousand farmhouses on the outskirts of the town were destroyed, and in one disturbing scene, some 30 French prisoners and their local priests were executed. None of this, however, would be enough to turn the tide of the war in Canada. Regardless of how many shells Wolf fired at Quebec, nothing seemed to move the needle. By the late summer, the British were increasingly engaging in a war of attrition. Of course, today when we think of a war of attrition, we imagine the trenches of World War I, two armies fighting until at last, one side becomes so exhausted and worn down that the other side can just kind of limp to victory. By the end of August, the British were fighting just that kind of war. Though it was realistically time, and not the French that proved to be their biggest obstacle. The French had little hope themselves of staging much of an offensive to drive the British away from Quebec. Other than a few feeble attempts using fire ships that went nowhere. All the French could really do is maintain their position and turn away any attempts at a British offensive. Wolfe, and for that sake Montcalm and Vaudreuil, knew that the real risk for the British by this point was the looming cold. If Quebec could just survive a little longer, the weather would turn, and the St. Lawrence would ice over. The British, not wanting to trap their fleet in the frozen river, would be forced to withdraw. With the 1759 campaigns then over, Montcalm and company would be open to spending a tense winter crossing their fingers, that, back in Europe, those in charge were just as sick of the war as he was, and that a peace could be reached. Wolfe, aware of the fact that his opportunity to take Quebec was waning, knew that he needed a decisive victory. Wolfe was determined not to leave Quebec without at least attempting to take the city. It was clear by this point that shelling the city alone was not going to be enough to end the battle. The city by this point had been seriously decimated, and the continued shelling was really just turning the rebel into smaller pieces of rubble. The entire fighting plan in North America had it been a series of each side getting, or rather attempting to get, into position and lay siege to an enemy. After going through the appropriate show, the besieged party would surrender. However, here in Quebec, Wolfe recognized that things were different and that he could not simply force the French into the town where he could lay siege against them. He was going to need something bigger to get the job done. What Wolfe so desperately needed was an actual open field battle where he could finally make some headway against the French defenses. The problem with this plan, however, is that, as of this moment, Montcalm had no interest in granting Wolfe that battle. The French are more than happy just to run out the clock, repulse any British invasion attempts, and await the ice. An actual open-field battle against the British would come with significant risk to the French defenders, with far less to gain than the British had. If Wolfe wanted his battle, it was going to be on him to force Montcalm's hand and give him no choice but to engage. Next time, Wolfe will get his battle, and the entire course of the French and Indian War will change. With the French desperate to hold out just a little bit longer until the river would ice over, and the British equally desperate to end the battle before the end of 1759, Both sides understood that they were fighting for nothing less than the survival of Canada itself. Until then, I hope that you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And as a reminder, please get those questions you have over to me for our Q&A episode. I will put the email into the show notes today. With that, I will see you all back here next time as we bring the 1759 campaign season who it's it